The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. A couple of weeks ago, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with uh, Bryce Zabel. It's rare uh, that we have a guest that's so well-versed uh, on so many different subjects, has such an extensive resume, and who just sounds so good. But that was the case with Bryce Zabel. He's a veteran television producer, director, writer, author, and these days... He is podca- a podcaster where he is the co-host of the Need to Know podcast. Bryce Zabel, welcome back. Hey, Frank, I enjoyed my first visit with you so much. I've been really looking forward to this. Let's get into it. Absolutely. Now, the last time you were here, you told us a little bit about uh, John Lennon's uh, UFO sighting. And uh, I'm wondering, I mean, you described it in detail two weeks ago, but I'm wondering, to the best of your knowledge, how did that shape the rest of John Lennon's uh, career as a songwriter, as a musician, as a personality? Did that change him at all? I think it did change him. I, certainly, if you go by his public statements, he almost was obsessed by it. I mean, immediately after this sighting, which was in August of 1974, he told all his friends about it. He called people about it. He had uh, he got in touch with the police department and, and with uh, journalistic sources, and he wrote songs about it. Uh, in fact, his next album that came out after this 1974 sighting was an album called walls and bridges and he even wrote on the album cover uh, about the and and drew in one of his little doodles about seeing the ufo and if you remember literally up until his death in 1980 he was working on a song called nobody knows uh that in involved the lyric that said there's ufos over new york and i ain't too surprised so yeah, I think it changed his life. I, I really do. Did did other folks witness that particular John Lennon UFO sighting? Uh, I've had a hard time tracking down specific people. I would love to be able to say I've talked to a bunch of them. That has not happened. However, at the time, he uh, did have a friend call the police department about it. Uh, he didn't want to call the police himself because he thought, uh, well, they'll just say, hey, it's John Lennon calling about a UFO. And he, right. he didn't think he'd get very far with that. But his friend called and the police that he called uh, said that they'd had two or three reports. And they also talked to uh, one of the uh, local papers. And I'm it's escaping me which one it was right now. Maybe Daily News. I'm not sure. Uh, but they said they'd have like seven or eight other reports on it. So he wasn't the only one based on that, but I haven't been able, I would love very much to be able to get somebody on the record. And, and if I ever do, I'll record them and we'll, we'll play Wonderful. it on your show. That'd be great. And the next time I, uh, I run into Geraldo Rivera, I'm going to ask him about this because he became pretty friendly with, uh, with John Lennon towards the end of his life. Now you're, I'm, I'm assuming you're a pretty big Beatles fan, right? I've even written a book about the Beatles. I, well, that's right. Yeah. 
once there was a way. Yeah, I'm a very big Beatles. So that's what I was going to ask you. You wrote this novel about yeah. the Beatles staying together. Uh, tell right. folks about that. Give me, give us the title again, because we do have a lot of Beatles fans in our audience. Of course, it's called "Once There Was a Way." What if the Beatles stayed together? And it, it basically is exactly what's in the title. I just think there was a lot of pent up uh, desire among fans to see what might have happened if the Beatles could have held on a little bit longer. So um, I'd already written a book about what would have happened if Kennedy had stayed alive uh, and gotten out of Dallas alive. And my uh, publisher said, well, what do you want to do next? Because it had won a, a big award, the Sidewise Award for Alternate History. So they said, what do you want to do next? And I said, I want to do the Beatles because I thought – uh, it would just be something that would, uh, well, it would be fun to write, and it was. It was terrifically fun to write. But I tried to make it very real. It's not a fantasy. Nobody goes back in time. There's no crazy stuff like that. I just tried to ask myself, what were the actual issues that kept them apart, and how might they have worked together to overcome them? And so um, that's what Once There Was a Way is about. It, did you end up seeing the film Yesterday, which takes sort of the opposite premise, uh, where a fellow wakes up in a world where the Beatles never existed? Uh, sure, of course. And I enjoyed it very much. Um, I actually enjoyed keeping a, a world where the Beatles stayed together even better, though, because, I mean, let's face it, it was nice to have the guy from yesterday singing Beatles songs, but it was also tragic and sad. Sure. There were no Beatles in that world. Yeah, it, now, um, as somebody that I imagine did a fair amount of research into the Beatles and their breakup, it, so often we were told that one of the primary causes of the breakup was John Lennon and his re relationship and collaboration with Yoko Ono. Is that true from what you can tell? Well, it's very interesting. You don't have to just take my word for it. If people want to right now, they can, of course, watch the uh, Get Back documentary, which uh, is on the Disney Plus channel. And that's the Peter Jackson directed documentary about the making of what started out as Get Back, but turned into Let It Be. And what you'll notice about that is that we've all heard that, you know, Lo Yoko was such a problem that, in fact, uh, you know, the, the other Beatles turned against her. But you'll see scenes in this documentary where Yoko is there and, and she is accepted by the others, uh, at least uh, at least she seems like he is. You see uh, pictures where Yoko and Linda McCartney are even hanging out together and talking. Uh, even Paul McCartney, to this day, you have to at least give him his due. If he has said that if the Beatles broke up, it wasn't just because of Yoko, that there were other issues. And I certainly my research would tell tell me that. I think that Yoko, obviously, uh, John bringing Yoko uh, to, to everywhere he went wasn't probably the, the best thing for a tight group of four guys. But again, going to the Get Back documentary, you'll see that all of the Beatles brought their respective significant others to those recording sessions. So uh, you can't just lay it all at John and Yoko's feet anymore. I think that there were uh, structural issues to the Beatles. There were issues about money. There were issues about just being burned out on each other. All, all of that. Excuse me. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, I right the day before you were on, I spoke with a gentleman who is a uh, you know, he's a man of science. He doesn't deal much with the paranormal. And uh, we do a great deal of that on, on this show. Uh, but uh, I, I was asked to ask him by a listener if he lent any credence to the idea of alien abduction. And I found his response so interesting. This is what Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, said on the subject of alien abduction a couple of weeks ago. Do you give any credence to the claims of 
people who say that they might have been abducted by space uh, aliens or have come into contact with extraterrestrials or that maybe even that extraterrestrials were responsible for building the Egyptian pyramids or Inca fortresses? Yes, Frank, I got to go to this one, and and this is very interesting. The abduction situations I have a little bit more, you know, believability in. And, And again, I say this from ignorance in a way, not arrogance. I was friends with a woman named Betty Hill. Oh, she, she yeah, we, we've covered her case quite a bit on this show. I knew her. I went to her home when she was alive, God rest her soul, many, many times, interviewed her on shows that I did in college. And I was kind of a disbeliever until I went there and really read the books and read the stories about under deep hypnosis. They both tell the same story. Her husband passed away, obviously, soon after. But the point is, the most prolific one is a gentleman that I know very well, is Travis Walton. Mm. And his story, I mean, is so amazing. The movie Fire in the Sky with D.B. Sweeney, just literally, folks, if you haven't seen it, uh, it's more of an adult movie at the very end because, not X-rated, but it's adult because, Frank, what they show, without spoiling the movie for people, Travis Walton's description of the aliens, of what they do to him, and they show that in the movie as the end of that movie. That was one of the spookiest things. But I believe that Travis had something happen to him. So I'm on board with that possibility because I, I really don't know. But I always want to learn to try to seek out knowledge and be an open mind. Bryce, I knew I thought his answer as a guy of science was so interesting. Sure. And I know you've studied and looked into and done some work uh, with respect to the Barney and Betty Hill incident. Sure. In a nutshell, can you explain what the Barney and Betty Hill abduction was, why that was so groundbreaking, and its place in the history of alien abductions today? Absolutely. Well, the first reason it's groundbreaking is because it was the first American case where anyone publicly said they'd been abducted by aliens. The case happened in 1961, and it is made more interesting by the fact that Betty and Barney Hill were an interracial couple. Uh, Barney was a black man, uh, Betty a white woman. And, of course, uh, in 1961, that had uh, uh, certain public penalties to it uh, uh, in in terms of just the life you would lead. And uh, they were coming back from a delayed honeymoon up in Canada, and uh, they claimed this is uh, in September of 1961 that they were stopped and taken aboard an aircraft. Now, what makes their story interesting uh, that this previous person was talking about is that they um, not only were the first to claim this, but they were the first to uh, experience missing time. Uh, They got home and they thought that, you know, they'd seen a UFO, but they didn't really remember anything about it. And then later they submitted to regressive hypnosis. So they were the first people to do that. And uh, you also mentioned Travis Walton. I want to wrap these together into this answer. What makes those two cases in particular uh, interesting is that in the Betty and Barney Hill case, and we could go on for hours about it, as you point out, but that hypnosis, if you listen to those uh, hypnosis tapes, they're absolutely riveting and they're chilling at the same time because Betty and Barney Hill are freaking out as they tell this story under uh, hypnosis. And the thing is, uh, where if somebody claimed that they were abducted by aliens today, you could say, well, maybe they watched too many movies, maybe they've been watching ancient aliens too often, that kind of thing. Betty and Barney had no such template to, to, to make this up from. So those hypnosis tapes, very important evidence. And as for Travis Walton, he was the guy that disappeared for five days and then showed up again. And, and he had been with his logging crew in Arizona. And those guys, uh, when Travis disappeared, were suspected of murdering him. 
which made it a fascinating case. I covered it as a young trail uh, radio reporter back then. But what's fascinating about that case is those guys all passed lie detector tests. Yeah. And uh, so you have the extra part of the abduction phenomenon there. But other than that, uh, I would just close by saying this. Uh, it isn't just those two people. Those are two excellent cases. And while it is on the spectrum of things ufological, it is on the far side of it. Uh, you can't dismiss it because many hundreds of thousands of people have claimed this happened to them. In terms of the B- Betty and Barney Hill incident, I had read that you were involved in a TV project yes. about that. What, what was that about? Tell us about that. Well, it's still ongoing. Uh, I've been fascinated by this for years, and I optioned the book uh, Captured, which is a, a book about the Betty and Barney Hill uh, case written by Kathy Martin and Stanton Friedman. And um, I've adapted it into a one-hour drama pilot for what would be a limited series. And we are literally in the market with it right now. We're getting some good uh, reactions from people. I think, you know, one of the the things we bumped up against is literally that it's not quite any one particular genre. It's not science fiction. It's not race. Mm. It's kind of a little bit of both. And uh, and it's a fascinating story. And I, I really think we're going to to get it put together. And I believe that in a, in a few years, uh, hopefully at the latest, uh, people will be able to see what we do with it. And then they can judge a little bit more about the case for themselves. It, there's actually a plaque commemorating the Betty and Barney Hill abduction up in New England, isn't there? <laughs> this is a good story for uh, investigative journalism. Uh, I I try. I'm a former reporter, as you know, and uh, I so I try to do a deep dive on on um, research when I when I try to adapt anything for screenwriting. So I've been doing a deep dive on Betty and Barney for years, and they did put up a plaque, uh, a road sign, a historical marker in New Hampshire uh, about the Betty and Barney Hill case. So I started um, researching this, and I found out. Uh, that that uh, marker has a couple of inaccuracies on it. I wrote a big article about it for uh, the Medium publication, Trail of the Saucers, that I I publish. And it turns out that this almost never happens, uh, but the state of New Hampshire person who is in charge of road signs and historical markers read my article and said, you got a pretty good case. We're going to take down the existing marker, rewrite it based on your article, and put up a new one. I mean, that's pretty cool. I mean, to know that you can have that kind of uh, of an impact on something that so often seems immovable, that's really impressive. It just blew me away that it would happen. Uh, and, and and frankly, the thing that I found that was inaccurate is that they'd almost written the, the guy that broke the story out of the story. There was a guy named John Luttrell Sr. who literally broke it. Uh, uh, for the Boston Traveler newspaper in 1965. Now, most people popularly think the first time they ever heard of Betty and Barney Hill was when the Interrupted Journey book was a big hit in the United States, and then it later became a movie with James Earl Jones starring in it. But the truth is that Interrupted Journey book came out in 1966, a full year after this other guy broke it. So, and the guy that broke it originally did it the old-fashioned way as an investigative reporter. He found out about the story. He tracked it down. He interviewed witnesses. And he did all the shoe leather work that, that is necessary to do good journalism. And I wanted to honor him. And now it sounds like the state of New Hampshire is going to do that, too. That's terrific. You mentioned the work that you do for uh, Medium. This week, you published a fascinating article 
on uh, your medium site. UFO confirmation, a change mm-hmm. is going to come. And you talk about how humanity's survival in what may be a universe that's quite crowded requires rapid thinking and bold action, not just political action, not just religious, not just scientific, but everything. Explain to us what a game changer UFO confirmation will be for not just American society, but human society. Well, I think it, it literally confirms we are not alone it, when, when and if it happens, and that that will be a game changer because suddenly our view of ourselves and where we fit into things will change. Listen, I try to stay pretty grounded on an ungrounded topic, if you will, uh, most of the time. But occasionally I like to write like that article where I sort of explain to people what I think my estimate of the situation is. And where I come down on this right now is – Uh, Since the New York Times uh, uh, sort of wrote a front page article about the UAP UFO situation back in 2017, we've been on the fast track where there seem to be new revelations uh, constantly. And where I go to right now is uh, many of your listeners probably already know this, but in uh, June of last year, uh, June of 2021, there was a report released by the intelligence community of the United States ordered by the Senate Intelligence Committee, passed into law, etc. And they put out a preliminary assist, uh, assessment on unidentified aerial phenomena. I'll boil this entire report down to just a few key concepts. Concept number one, they said these things are real. And we don't know exactly what they are, but they're physically real. They can go 10,000 miles an hour. They can do fast turns. They behave in ways that our current technology can't behave. Part two, they said, we don't think the United States makes this, even in our black budget Mm. stuff. And part three, we don't think China or Russia makes them either. So I simply submit to your uh, audience and everyone else, if they're real and and they're not made in America and Russia and China aren't making them, that leaves a very small list of other people who might. And I think you have to think it's probably something exotic, which is why – when we simply confirm to ourselves that these things are real and they're coming from some place or somebody that's not us, that will, in fact, change the world as we know it. Wow. Uh, that is well. I mentioned, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Bryce Zabel. He's the co-host of the Need to Know podcast. I enjoyed uh, one of the more uh, recent episodes that you did. I think it's the most recent, actually where you explore the um, the issue of UAP visits and whoever's responsible for these UAP visits, uh, you ask the question, do they want us to know uh, that they're there? Uh, what do you think? Do you think that uh, extraterrestrials, if that's presumably who's responsible for flying in these crafts, do you think that they want uh, to be known or or not? Well, Frank, let's look at it from the most basic point of view. If they literally wanted us to be known, they could probably commandeer your radio signal and every television signal around the planet and announce that they were here. Or they could, in fact, land on the White House lawn or in Central Park. All right. So they haven't done that. Um, And in fact, if you try to just be intuitive about this, the one thing you could say that humanity and whoever these others are seem to agree about over the years is that it should be a secret because both sides could have ended the secrecy. We could have had a news conference and and set foot in, in the East Room of the White House and the president could have said, we're not alone and here's our evidence. Well, we never did that, haven't come even close to that. Um, And they never landed on the White House lawn. So 
we've we've agreed that there should be some secrecy. Now, what is interesting, though, is over the last 75 years, there have been tens of thousands of excellent reports from people who have seen these strange objects in our skies. And uh, you could even argue that they're picking up in some intensity. They're certainly being observed over our nuclear sites and in association with nuclear weapons. That's what these latest videos that came out in 2017 and 2018 are all about. Those are Navy videos where our own naval pilots operating with the best equipment that the United States government can buy for the military, with sense, bristling with sensors that can come up with the best data for, uh, possible, with pilots that have been trained to recognize every kind of plane that they might encounter are saying they've seen something otherworldly. All right, So we are getting to the place where these same pilots are saying that they're seeing hundreds of these things, and sometimes every day. So, yeah, I think we may be getting to a place where our hand is being uh, potentially pushed on this, where somebody wants uh, to talk about it in a more public way. You mentioned that these beings could just lie on the uh, land on the front lawn of the White House. And while they haven't done that, that's not terribly far off from what happened back in 1952 with the Washington, D.C. UFO incident where there was a series of UFO reports in the summer of 1952 over Washington, D.C., and the most publicized sightings took place on consecutive weekends in July. And uh, this seems to be a pretty brazen uh, flight right in the vicinity of the White House. I know you, you cover this on your podcast. What is your take on this particular incident, the 1952 Washington, D.C. UFO incident? Well, I think you covered the case very well. Just to put a point on what you just said, this is two weekends in a row. And each weekend, there was a a light show put on in the skies above Congress and above the White House. Well reported at the time, by the way, covered by the Washington Post and other major news publications as well. Absolutely. And it literally took the uh, uh, Democratic nominating convention and threw it off the front page of the paper because it was such a big deal. So. Lots of people saw these things, but more importantly, the U.S. military saw them up close and personal. And I would just ask you uh, and your listeners today, imagine if fleets of UFOs were observed flying over Washington, D.C. today over a weekend, and then they did it again the next weekend, and our own government couldn't tell you what they were or how they got there. I think we'd have everybody in the entire country freaking out about it. And the whole idea that we would still be debating on your show and other shows whether these things are real would sort of be out the window. The question wouldn't be, are they real anymore? It would be, who are they and what do they want? And and I guess to sort of take it in a circular way back here, what happened in 1952, what happened uh, actually 75 years ago in 1947 when there was Roswell and the very first Kenneth Arnold sighting and those 10,000 other Uh, cases that have happened since, all of that may be leading to a place where we, we can start to stop focusing on just proving that they exist, because now our own government has admitted that they do, and we can begin to turn our intellectual and, and public firepower on the bigger question, uh, again, who are they, what do they want, and what does it mean to us? And I think as we move forward over the next few years, 
uh, I guess that's what I was writing about in today's article. As we move forward in the next couple of years, we're apt to get closer and closer to that moment when we all collectively say, wow, we got a situation going on here. What are we going to do about it or can we do anything about it? Bryce, uh, my only regret in having you on the radio is our time together must end uh, because I find you uh, so fascinating and I very much appreciate the time this morning. I'll look forward to our next conversation. You got it, my friend. Thank you. And hi to all your listeners. Thank you. Be sure to check out Bryce Zabel's podcast. It is called The Need to Know Podcast. It is available wherever podcasts are available.